You're listening to the Star Wars Reports Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable, on Twitter at Rebels Round, or through our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, so strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. It's our first regular episode covering the Rebels animated series. And whether you're a former listener of Republic Forces Radio Network, a listener of Star Wars Report Beyond the Films, or found us in some other way, we're glad to have you here. I'm Jonathan, and joining me tonight to discuss the first episode, Spark of Rebellion, is Jen. Hey, everybody. Barrent. Hey, everybody. It's nice to be back. We got the band back together one more time. And Nathan. Hey, everybody. And this is an entirely new series, and this is some of the first original media that's come out since the Disney buyout of Lucasfilm. Whereas Clone Wars had previously been released on Cartoon Network, this is Disney's in-house animated channel, Disney XD. And before we dive into the episode, and Nathan, to give our listeners a sense of context, why don't you talk about where we've been and where we are and where we're going as far as Rebels? All right. Well, basically what we have here is the first animated series since uh, the Disney buyout, as Jonathan mentioned there. This is sort of a new thing for Star Wars in a lot of ways. It's not just a new cartoon series. It's part of the ground floor of a whole new continuity, a whole new timeline, a whole new reality, whatever you want to call it. When we were talking about the Clone Wars micro-series or uh, droids or Ewoks, those were all things kind of created in a vacuum but which then got shoehorned into this long-standing, huge, decades-long Star Wars continuity that officially kicked off in 1991, but wound up wrapping in all this older stuff as it went along, going all the way back to 1976 with the A New Hope novelization. So this massive, massive continuity is great and all, but it was somewhat restrictive. And a lot of times there'd be clashes. Anytime you would see Lucasfilm want to do something that perhaps was different than what had been done before, that's what we kept running into with Continuity Corner, uh, on Republic Forces Radio Network talking about the Clone Wars. You know, here's Ahsoka. Well, how does she fit in? Well, well, if this is what uh, Assange Ventress is doing now, how does it fit in with, say, the comic obsession and so on? Those types of clashes were something that was sort of commonplace. And it even is taking place at least a little bit with uh, Son of Dathomir, the comic series that adapts some of the uh, unproduced Clone Wars episodes. When Disney picked up things, though, they started to change things behind the scenes. And as of April of this year, they announced that they were ending, essentially, in most respects, that ongoing timeline and calling it Legends. And instead, they were going to build a new foundation of a new continuity that they're calling simply Canon. It's a term that's bandied about a lot within Star Wars, used, misused, subdivided, to the point where I tend to call it story group canon, because there's a group called the story group that's basically working like Lucas was in being the one to guide this whole thing. The difference being that whereas Lucas kind of did his thing and just let it trample over anything else if it was necessary, in this case, the story group is working to make sure that everything actually does work together and is equally valid. Whether we're talking about films, cartoon series, books, comics, video games, whatever, it's all meant to be one broader continuity. But it is starting at a ground floor. Think of it this way. They've taken the live-action films we already have, episodes one through six, those plus the Clone Wars, 
plus the Clone Wars adaptation Son of Dathomir, because it's basically episodes of the show, but adapted as a comic. Plus, what we are now getting with Rebels and the new films, those are this new kind of foundation that we have here that everything is going to build off of. So at this point, it's a very fresh uh, fertile ground for new storytelling here. This cartoon series could go just about anywhere as long as it doesn't contradict the classic trilogy. You've got one novel at this point, A New Dawn by John Jackson Miller that introduces Hera and Kanan. We've got a young reader book by Ryder Wyndham called Ezra's Gamble that introduces Ezra and involves Bosk. And we've got the Son of Dathomir comic. Beyond that, really all we've got at this point are the Clone Wars cartoon, the films, and now this one episode of Rebels. It's literally a ground floor. So it's going to be interesting to see how the ride goes along here because you've got a lot of creative talent who were a part of that previous continuity, but who now have a fresh playing field with all the experiences they've had and perhaps all the creative ideas they've sort of held back because they weren't really ready to use them yet, um, including Dave Filoni. So this should be an exciting new ride. Rebels started with this episode, but there were four little shorts to kind of introduce us not only to the characters in Rebels, but I think the look and the feel of what this series is going to give us. Now, I know that we've all seen those four shorts. As a whole, what were your feelings on them? Did they get you excited for the introduction of this series? Did they give you a little hesitation? And did you have a favorite? And I'm going to go with Jen. What did you think of them? I've been trying to keep an open mind. I did not know how I would like this series just because it's going to be very, I think, focused on this core group. And depending on how the characters go, that could be either really good or really not so good. So the little snippets... I felt like helped a little bit, but they didn't, they were, they they felt like sizzle reels, just kind of there to get people's attention there to just maybe draw some interest. And it didn't really go into a whole lot of depth. So I didn't dislike them. They didn't get me like really jived and ready for the show, but it was nice to see them at least promoting it and trying to get more interest in this show because I think some people um, kind of jumped off at Clone Wars and it would be nice to see them continue on. Barrett, what did you think of the four little shorts? You know, the first one I saw was the Ezra one, and and then I saw the Zeb one, and I didn't see the other two because the Ezra one and the Zeb one, it, you know, it kind of got me scared because when you promote a new cartoon or a new show, you want to get to as many people as you can, but I think some of the things that can go wrong is if people don't like the characters. And Zeb and Ezra did not really jump out at me like Obi-Wan or even Anakin or any of the characters from the Clone Wars. So it kind of got me a little scared. I mean, the animation is beautiful for the shorts. The voice work is great, but I wasn't really sure if I liked the characters. I mean, come on, Ezra's slingshot thing is just stupid. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous. So it kind of put me off a little bit. And I didn't watch the other two because I did not want to have a bad taste in my mouth when Spark of Rebellion was released. I will talk about the characters and everything as we get into the show. But it didn't impress me or excite me the way that I hoped it would. And Nathan, what did you think of those first four shorts? Pretty positive impression overall. The Sabine one of Art Attack, we had seen similar shots to that enough times within some of the other promo material that it didn't really feel like there was much there that was new, so that one didn't really grab me all that much. Entanglement with Zeb, 
honestly made Zeb more likable than Spark of Rebellion did, uh, although I think he's going to be a character that grows on us. He just didn't get really a chance to shine. The other two, though, are the ones that really got me interested, because uh, the Machine and the Ghost, at this point, I'm sad that Chopper didn't get more time in Spark of Rebellion, because he may wind up being my favorite character on the show, because he cracked me up in that quick little short with him, where it seems like he's the one who has the common sense among the crew and everybody else is kind of doing their thing, and, you know, I need this now, and yet he's the one trying to serve everyone, and it's driving him crazy. Not what you think, uh, the Ezra one. Actual clip itself didn't really get me excited because of what was in it, per se, but there's overlap. Ezra's Gamble, the young reader story that shows Ezra, uh, and the first time he ever sees the ghost. The last chapter of that book is perfectly and purposely interwoven so that it is that short. It's, it's essentially an adaptation of it. The first time they really made an effort to cross over content rather than characters in this new story group canon. And if that means that they really are thinking of these as on equal ground, and eventually if Ezra meets Bosk, they're going to have that history, and that's what they're kind of leaning towards here, um, that's an exciting thing. So to see that connection excited me. But the only one of these that really got me fired up for a character was Chompers. And my feeling about those shorts is I really did enjoy them. Nathan, much like you, my favorite was The Machine and the Ghost. There was something about that sequence that, and purposely, I think, called back to the Thai Millennium Falcon battle from A New Hope. And I just found myself really finding myself drawn into it. I, I liked the banter between Kanan and Hera. And I, like you, I really enjoyed Chopper. The other ones... Uh, with the exception of the, what, Ezra's tale, I, I did enjoy, I liked kind of the new character. I think that there is a lot of fertile ground that they can explore here. And as anybody who heard our kind of snapshots introducing ourselves over the summer knows, I was a big Star Wars role player back in the day. And the feel that I get here is very similar to like a, a feel of a, a group that I had or that I would play with that would go... You know, we had a ship, we all had different backgrounds, and we would go through different adventures together. That's how this feels to me. And this really kind of excited me for what this show could do. So, now moving on to Spark of Rebellion, this first hour-long sort of movie introduction. Before we get into the content of it, what was your guys' initial impressions? Did you like this? Did this give you what you wanted? Most of all, did it feel like Star Wars to you? And Barrett, why don't you kick us off? Oh, yeah. It really felt like Star Wars. All the way from when Ezra first kind of feels Kanan through the Force. You hear Obi-Wan Kenobi's theme music. I really like that. And the TIE Fighter. I mean, the first shot is the TIE Fighters flying over that planet. And it just brings you right in. And I like the way that Filoni and crew are making the TIE Fighters fly the way that we think TIE Fighters should fly. Where they kind of overshoot you you know they're, they're chase you but they overshoot you and then they have to kind of come around and come back and shoot you again and they overfly you again i mean that really feels like star wars and it really brought me into it immediately i can't wait to see what they do with these new characters and merging what we know from the old from the original trilogies to this new rebels animated cartoon so I was brought in, I, I was brought in immediately, you know, and I like the fact that Disney is trying to stay away from the prequel trilogy. I mean, it seems like they don't want to have anything to do with that, that they want that original trilogy feel. And I really got that. 
Nathan, how about you? Did this feel Star Wars to you? It definitely did. This is an a, a episode, mini-movie, whatever you want to call it, that does have its flaws, things that stood out to me that caused me to shake my head. That I think we're more there for, in some cases, younger viewers, in other cases, an overabundance of affinity for old Kenner action figures, or Aladdin, but I'm an Aladdin fan. But overall, ex- aside from those few times I was shaking my head, I was really into it, really enjoyed it, and there were two moments that had me sort of, you know, it, it put those final check marks on there so that by the time it was over with, I'm like, yes, Star Wars, original Star Wars is back. And really, I mean, the obvious one probably is Kanan first turning on the lightsaber in front of Callus and all of that. That's the one that kind of had me, you know, getting almost a chill. But oddly enough, what really made me think, wow, Star Wars is back, there's just one brief scene, blink and you'll miss it, of Callus and some stormtroopers standing in a hallway on a Star Destroyer talking and walking off. But it evoked all of those instances of seeing those types of hallways, whether it's on the Death Star or otherwise, in the classic trilogy that for some reason, that sort of kicked in the back of my mind, wow, this is its own thing tying into the original trilogy. This is not some continuation of the Clone Wars. This is not the aesthetic we got before. This is really happening. The Star Wars that we had wanted to see come back since 83 is really getting a chance to do so here. So I liked it. Jen, how about you? Initial impressions? Yeah, this definitely felt like Star Wars, and I'm I'm really enjoying that. In some ways, it has, like Nathan said, a kind of different aesthetic than than Clone Wars, and and Clone Wars was fine, but it's nice to change. So I'm I'm, I'm excited to see that that deviation, and this feels more a New Hope to me than than anything else. And and yeah, I think some of the the callbacks to the original trilogy were almost overdone, like the the little Force cue, the the little cup like 10 second lead in to the obi-wan theme was done like over and over which is a little bit much in my opinion but for the most part i felt like it worked pretty well and i I enjoyed it now this episode opens with a star destroyer arriving on the planet lothal and we get the impression that the empire has been there for a little while but for whatever reason they're getting reinforcements or there's a new presence and we're introduced to our first character not by name of ezra who sees the star destroyer approaching capital city and takes a bike from i'm assuming it's a watchtower or something they never really explained that to me in this episode perhaps they do in some of the other material that you can fill us in on nathan and he goes into the city where we get an example of the empire mistreating the citizens how i mean this really did sort of start us in the action there was no sort of lead up there were no explanations it just kind of threw you in there and you had to kind of figure it out as you went along how did this work for you and what again what are your feelings about how this is how this is sort of laying the groundwork for Ezra's character and how he's introduced to the other main characters of Kanan, Zeb and Sabine well i liked it i liked the fact that the emp- the empire is pushing people around you know, we want to dislike the Empire. We don't want to like them. You know, they have all of these propaganda posters up. I like the fact that you get the feeling that the Empire has not been around too long because they're still trying to win the hearts and minds of the people they're conquering with these propaganda posters. But at the same time, they're treating the locals like dirt. And I like that. And I, I like the fact that Ezra is not a smart aleck. You know, they describe him as a street rat you know, all kinds of different rats. And he's very smart. You know, you got to be smart. We're going to find out, I assume, why he's by himself, why he doesn't have uh, anyone taking care of him, why he's taking care of himself. But I like the introduction of him being smart. 
he looks like if you have not seen any of the shorts, you get the you get the feeling that he's not scared of the Empire, that he's dealt with them before. He knows how to trick them. He kind of knows how the Empire's protocols are handled uh, because he, he comes up with a plan on how to distract them immediately. So I like the fact that he's very smart and I had a chuckle when he helps the guy with the fruit, but then, you know, the guy wants to give him one fruit and he takes about six or seven, you know, <laughs> and I like that. And it seemed pretty natural the way that he gets introduced to Kanan and the crew, where he kind of gets this force feeling. He recognized Kanan through the force first, which is kind of odd because Kanan is the Jedi. And it seems like Kanan should be the one to recognize Ezra first. But they kind of explain that, that Ezra is strong in the force. You know, everybody's strong in the force now. But it was very natural on how he gets introduced to the crew and why they don't like him and why they don't trust him. So I I like that. And Ezra starts growing on me at this point. I don't think anybody who's seen this can deny that there are a lot of parallels drawn and probably intentionally so between Ezra and Aladdin. And Nathan, you've already said to us that you're a fan of Aladdin. Was this was pretty blatant, wasn't it? Yeah, he's straight up Aladdin. Um, And I'm not sure how I feel about that. It is so blatant that part of me wants to go, oh my god, I can't believe that what they're doing. But the fact that it is so blatant makes it seem like this wasn't something that was supposed to be a secret. You know, this was a blatant homage, and we just kind of go with it. And as the character develops, hopefully he'll become less and less Aladdin-like, and perhaps more uh, Jedi-like by the time it's done. Um, you asked about where he was staying. That tower thing, it's an abandoned communications tower, and it's actually where he lives. Um, he's an orphan, but he's got this comm tower that was abandoned. He uses that as his home, and he's got this uh, basically stolen or abandoned little, kind of like a miniature swoop by looking thing. I forget the exact name of it. Um, they go into detail with that and sort of how he's gathering up all these helmets as trophies and such that he wants for a collection, um, kind of like the lightsaber that could add dust in the collection they mentioned at the end. It's all kind of background we get a little bit of in Ezra's Gamble. Um, I like the way they introduce the characters. We got... As heavy-handed as it might be, rather than having him be like, ooh, I sense something, because the character already talks to himself way too much. You know, this better be worth it, (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. To have the sense of the Force be something they kind of leave up to the viewer to understand by hearing the music cue, seeing them look towards each other, and never really hammering that in any other way in the episode, I thought was pretty well handled. The overuse of some of the same lines is not. Very heavy-handed. When this aired originally as a preview, we got about, what, 7 minutes, 14 minutes, whatever it was. Some little snippet here. Basically a commercial break worth of time. And just in that quick span, which is this introductory scene, we get, who is that kid? Who are those guys? Who was that kid? Okay, we got it. Who was whatever? We're done with that line now, please. Same thing with the end him thing. Very heavily beating you over the head. You know, if the big guy finds out you took this from the boss or whatever, he's going to end you. And if if Kanan catches that kid, I'm going to end him. Oh, that's the boss. And yeah, that's the big guy. We got it. Thankfully, oddly enough, those things worried me when seeing that preview that they were going to be hammering those types of lines over and over and it would really get old really fast. Instead, it's really confined just to that first couple of scenes. So it seems like they were really trying to just kind of hammer those things, maybe to get younger audiences to get it really, really fast so they can move on. So as heavy-handed as it is, it serves the broader tapestry here. So since it doesn't continue, can't really knock him too bad for it. It's 
heavy-handed, but an interesting opening. You should also keep in mind, by the way, folks, keep an eye out. You'll see those Imperials that were hassling the little uh, fruit seller dude again. That's Commandant Oresco and Taskmaster Grint. They are recurring characters. Now, Nathan, I think you hit a good point. I think they established quite early that this may be targeted toward younger audiences than maybe some of especially the later seasons of The Clone Wars was. Now, Jen, how did this opening sequence work for you? I was kind of surprised at how heavy-handed they were with the Aladdin stuff, and I couldn't decide whether it was just easy. Like, here's a character, we can just piggyback on his backstory, we can just use a couple of cues, we don't have to explain anything, people are familiar with it. Or if it was almost like Disney trying to cement the idea that Star Wars is kind of theirs now, or like kind of a blending of the two worlds. It was very it was very jarring for me to like mixing my chocolate with my peanut butter. Like, why is the Disney in my Star Wars? It was very weird. And, and I understood why that was probably happening, but it was disconcerting. And I think it works from a storytelling perspective, but I don't know that I cared for it. But yeah, the first half of the of the introduction where they're just kind of who is that person it was very i felt bludgeoned over the head when you said they didn't really explain anything to the audience i was kind of surprised because i felt like everything was very much explained (laughs) that not like literally not like heavy exposition but like the action was very geared towards leading you kind of hand-holding you to get to a kind of event or a, a get you to a point in the show where you kind of know everybody and know what's going on. You have a basic idea without really having to pay much attention. So it was, it was fine though. It worked. And I think you think you're right. This is probably geared towards a younger audience. Although the gratuitous death that we'll see later with the stormtroopers makes me wonder about that. After the introductions were thrown into the action really quick with the theft of these crates. And we don't initially know what's in these crates, but Kanan and his group, have obviously worked up a heist, and Ezra manages to sort of jump in and steal some of it, and we're introduced to each of these characters, or very, very quickly, Kanan, Zeb, and Sabine. We get a look at some of what the Empire looks like at this stage. This is obviously in the time period between Episode 3 and Episode 4. We have stormtroopers, but they don't look exactly the same. We have speeder bikes, but it's not what we see later. And we have other troopers. We have these speeder bike troopers. And I know that this was intentional, but all of these things, I was pulling out my old Ralph McQuarrie sketchbooks and going, yep, seen that, seen that, seen that. This is this is all pulled from concept art from all three of the movies and i really liked seeing it and i really liked this sequence i think that this chase was just well done and i found myself extremely engaged a little bit more than i thought i would have been nathan what about you yeah i'm not sure that the chase itself until the end until it's basically the okay who's gonna swoop in and save ezra thing uh as our introduction to the ghost uh, which was exciting because you could expect that the ghost was coming as opposed to it being, oh no, what's going to happen to Ezra? It was less the chase itself and more the lead-in to it that got me. The thing that stands out to me is him basically, you know, saying thank you when he steals it, but also when Sabine manages to free a couple of the crates from him and she's not trying to stop him. She doesn't try to kill him or anything. She plays sort of the happy rogue, kind of like Han Solo is like, like you know, if if the big guy catches you, he'll end you. Good luck, kind of thing. That, in a lot of ways, established for me the the attitude of the characters. It, yeah, it's a chase scene. It establishes where the crates go. But in so many ways, 
the things that are said, how Zeb grumbles when Kanan's giving the orders more seriously and Sabine's the one who's a little more uh, happy-go-lucky in some respects while still getting the job done, manages to do a lot to establish those characters that maybe a bunch of more heavy-handed dialogue couldn't have done. I almost don't see it as an action sequence. It's almost like the character-building piece of what would have been maybe a first episode if this had been split in half originally. You know, and what it also does for me is I like seeing that a Jedi that survived Order 66 is out there actually doing something. You know, I always had a problem with Yoda going into hiding. Like, why would he go into hiding? He's the most powerful Jedi out there. Why would he not try to do something? And they're trying to get it to where Obi-Wan is not really hiding. He's actually protecting Luke on Tatooine. And that sits well with me. That sits better with me. And then we see a hologram from Obi-Wan that is was in the the holocron and that he's an active participant in trying to save other jedi's lives i mean we kind we got that we saw a clip of that in episode three where he and yoda go to the jedi temple and send out you know he says i sent out a message and we finally get to see what that message is but i like to see that the Je- a jedi is out there doing something that they're they're not all just hiding that he's trying to be a Jedi, he's trying to disrupt the Empire any way he can by helping refugees, helping the slaves of the Empire. And I like that. I, I it, it doesn't sit well with me that Yoda just went into hiding and went crazy. And I like the fact that there's a Jedi doing something. And this scene set that up for me. You know, Baron, I think it's very interesting that you say that because... I know that you haven't read A New Dawn yet, and that really kind of leads into this. First of all, it's never explained in the episode, and it is explained in New Dawn, is Kanan was never a Jedi. At most, he was a Padawan when Order 66 happened, and his master saved him, and he went into hiding and decided he was going to sort of not accept that piece of him. He was not going to accept the Jedi responsibility. Sure, he would help people, but he, it was very, very clearly stated at the beginning of A New Dawn that he was he was out for himself. And I'm sure we'll talk about this down the road when we discuss A New Dawn. And through the course of New Dawn, he realizes that he's got to be there for other people. He finally almost understands that even though he's not a Jedi per se, and there is no Jedi Order, that he still has these Jedi responsibilities. And it's something I guess I kind of wish that they had dealt with a little bit more in this episode, because it would have made the payoff at the end of this episode, and again, we'll get to it, where he reveals himself as a Jedi to the ISB agent mean more, because you don't really get the sense of you know, where, I mean, yeah, you know that he has a lightsaber, you know he has a holocron, but you don't really know that he's been kind of hiding that side of him for as long as he has. Well, you know, now that you said that, it kind of makes sense to me why why he did not sense Ezra first, because maybe his training wasn't complete. But the fact that without that context, without me reading A New Dawn, the fact that there is a Jedi out there doing something I liked. Yeah, he was 14, uh, Padawan to Depabilaba, so goodbye Shatterpoint if this was in the original continuity and such. You mentioned... Obi-Wan's message and how we never got a chance to actually see it originally. That is something that I love about A New Dawn, and I call it a minor spoiler because it only spoils the prologue, okay? In A New Dawn, we find out what the text is or, or what the uh, the bulk of the original message was. So this is apparently a later message that Obi-Wan has recorded to send out. The original message was simply, 
This is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Republic forces have been turned against the Jedi. Avoid Coruscant, avoid detection. Stay strong. May the Force be with you. That was it. We find out, though, that when he was a Padawan, when he was a Jedi student, Kanan was not Kanan. It's an alias, basically, and, and a persona he's taken on. His name was Caleb Doom. I love the pun there, Doom, with his name, D-U-M-E, though. And that Caleb, while in a lesson talking about the emergency beacon that would call the Jedi home to defend the temple, brings up to Obi-Wan, what if something else happened? Could the beacon be made to tell Jedi to stay away instead of telling Jedi to come home? And Obi-Wan's like, you know, I hadn't really thought of that, but I guess it could. So in a sense, he planted the seed that leads to that warning, and that just makes it all the more poignant that this is a man who sits there near the end and sees in this holocron another of these recorded messages from Obi-Wan. So it's not the exact message from it, but the, the poignancy of it and the tie-in is even deeper than it seems like on the surface because now in this new canon, the idea came from Kanan. Kanan and Ezra are rescued by the ghost and the escape from the planet goes on. And we then see this banter between two characters that were really the, the center of A New Dawn, Kanan and Hera. And I found myself, again, very colored by my reading of that, that novel. I, I looked at those characters differently than I, may, than I might have if I hadn't read that novel. Again, I, I'm feeling this sort of this, this cohesion as they're, as they're kind of trying to figure out who Ezra is as they're escaping from the, these four TIE fighters that are chasing them. We're, again, introduced a little bit more to the other characters, Zeb, Chopper, and Sabine. And I, I don't know, I just, I'm feeling that I really, really am liking how these, the, all these characters just kind of play off each other. Yeah, this was where I started getting more interested in the show. The The big kind of action-packed intro was okay for me, but I, I like to see kind of the, the character dynamics and get to know how this little group works and what's their deal and who's kind of who and why are they that way. And and I they this is where I feel like they got a little bit more, there's a little bit more finesse in the writing in terms of how they were dropping these little hints and these little character beats that gave you kind of a lot of information about each of the characters without having to do a whole lot. And I really enjoyed it. Just like the way Sabine is kind of rolling her eyes at, um, at Ezra and, and that little line where Hera calls kid love. It was just kind of like, wait, what? So you have to be paying attention now. And I kind of, I really enjoyed that. And the love thing kind of threw me. I'm wondering if that's just her saying, you know, pal or whatever, uh, like as if somehow she's picked up a little bit of British along the way as being part of Clan Syndulla, where some of them had French accents and such back in the Clone Wars. You gotta wonder, though, where that ends. Uh, not to spoil the end of A New Dawn, but it leaves a question as to whether or not there's any chance of a relationship between Hera and Kanan based on circumstances and where they end. I won't say where specifically they end. But it's interesting because that book is six years prior to this. You know, this series is set 14 years after Revenge of the Sith. It's five years before A New Hope. Uh, the book was set six years prior so you got a gap where these characters could have grown even from what little we knew about them from the novel. I, I, I also like the interplay between Ezra and Sabine. I'm hoping they don't turn this into a quick romance. Um, it's not that it's necessarily unheard of between Sabine being 16 and Ezra being 14, but maybe the age gap will help her look at him sort of as the new kid and the, the kid as opposed to appear for a little while so that it doesn't become sort of that immediate, oh, here's a female, here's a male. They're not 
aliens, so let's pair them off type of thing. And that seems like they're going in that more you know, safe direction here in a lot of ways. The, the, again, the only character who doesn't feel like he gets much depth at all from these little nuances is Zeb. The most characterization Zeb feels like he gets in terms of depth is when Hera uses his whole name to scold him and it actually scolds him. He feels like the stereotypical, I'm gonna grumble about everything, quasi-bruiser guy, and he's even got the accent you'd expect him to have if this was a human character on any buddy comedy show or buddy action movie that you've seen in like the last 10 years. Uh, but everybody else gets those nuances. Even Chopper gets the nuances in the scenes, but not Zeb. Uh, I wish, I don't know about Chopper, but I like Zeb. You know, I like the fact that Zeb paid homage to the Wookiees. Because we all know that Zeb was the original character design for Chewbacca. And when they find out that the Wookiees have been, are being taken to some sort of detention camp or whatever, it's almost like Zeb feels like he has a life debt to the Wookiees. And I like that. His species, by the way, is brand new. He's a Lasat, L-A-S-A-T. So he's sort of total fertile ground. I mean, there is no preconception of this species at all, even in the writer's minds, because he is brand new as is his species, which is cool. It's a, a first for this series. But again, with the weapon. I mean, what kind of weapon? I don't understand these weapons that they're giving them. I mean, he has a close battle or close fighting weapon where it's kind of like the staff that is kind of similar to the Magnagar's staff. And, it, well, give him a blaster. Why does he have to have this stupid he, weapon? He does. It's a bow rifle. It is actually a blaster slash staff and changes modes. To me, that's even more ridiculous that you have a staff that shoots. I mean, make up your mind. Hey, pick up the visual guide. Let me know what you think when you see the design of a certain other character's lightsaber, and I don't mean the Inquisitor. All right. Well, let's talk about the two other characters, Sabine and Hera. Now, Hera was talked about in A New Dawn, and it, it is Hera Syndulla, correct, Nathan? Yes, but they haven't clarified the relationship between her and Chom, just that it's the same clan. I Now, I kind of took it as he was her father, based on you know what she said in the book, and just, I don't know, that that's how I took it. She's a Twi'lek. She's of the right age to have been there when the uh, liberation of Ryloth took place that we saw back in the Clone Wars. Maybe we saw her. So is this is this the little green girl with the little stuffed animal from the Clone Wars? Is that what you're saying? No, that's that's Numa, and she's bluish green. Uh, Hera would have been, depending on when you place that within the Clone Wars, uh, probably around. Uh, seven or so years old. She's 24 in Rebels. So 10 at the end of the Clone Wars, say seven around, give or take, around the time of season one of Clone Wars. Well, I'd like to hear what uh, Jen thinks about this, because this is the first Twi'lek, really, that is not using her sexuality to as her power. I mean, she's fully clothed, and she's very smart. She's the pilot. She doesn't seem like she takes a lot of orders. In fact, she seems like she gives a lot of orders. And I'd like to hear what uh, what you think about that, Jen. Oh, Hera was a breath of fresh air. And I know this probably sounds ridiculous, but she was not wearing skin-tight clothes. And that is something, I don't know if guys notice this, but I as a girl, woman notice this a lot, where every girl has like the swanky hip walk and they have the skin-tight clothes and you can see their bum kind of thing. 
and it was so refreshing to see her in baggy pants and and she's not wearing like this really tight shirt like she doesn't have cleavage window it was like thank you for a character design for once especially of a toy like that is not sexualized it was really refreshing and and i like her character she's kind of sassy so far and and she's a little bit mother hennish but like she's fun she doesn't take any crap from anybody it seems like and, and i'm enjoying her so far Amen. Much as I ripped into the designs for Ahsoka when she was 14 and even the boob window thing when she was 16, 17, the fact that Hera is just a regular person. He's not super sexualized in any form. And they even did it with Sabine. When you look at Sabine, Sabine's got the Mandalorian armor. If this was designed by the folks designing the costumes for the Clone Wars in the past for the main characters, you know that armor would have been like the armor you get for women in most movies as opposed to real life. There would have been so many parts showing that one blaster shot should have killed her. Instead, they went straight Mando, more Bo-Katan style, and she looks like a character, not a sexualized character. None of these characters scream sexualization, which is awesome. I wonder if that's a Disney influence, or this was Filoni and them deciding to go a different direction. Be interesting um, to get an answer on that one. I'll put money on the fact that it was Disney's influence. That I, that was that was a discussion they had to have had. Yeah, I don't think Disney wants a 14-year-old running around in little clothing. You know, they they have an image to uphold. I mean, they have princesses to uphold. And they want their female characters to be strong and maybe a little bit desexualized or maybe you get to know them. You know, I have no doubt that eventually they will have to use Hera in some sort of sexual way to get onto a ship or something like that. I'm sure that's going to be coming, but that's not her core. That's not her power. Her power is her brain. And it's about time. Now, the other new female character, Sabine. Okay, I got to ask this because I found myself wondering it. Is she related to Satine, do you guys think? Baron, I'm surprised you haven't asked if this is Obi-Wan's, like, illegitimate love child or something. You know, I hope that she is. She has Mando armor. Her name is Sabine. She could, she's 14 years old. So, you know, maybe Satine did have a love child with Obi-Wan, you know, and maybe Obi-Wan knows about it. I mean, it's all up in the air right now. And how cool would it be if she is related to Obi-Wan? Or she is not related to Obi-Wan, but related to Satine somehow and can carry on that bloodline and that heroic, strong uh, female leadership type of quality. You know, and the one thing I liked about Sabine is that she's a pyromaniac. You know, when she blows stuff up, she wants to see it, you know, and I like that. You know, I like that, that she's not all up. She's not all up there, you know, from the fact of letting Ezra go to blowing stuff up. You know, she might have some issues going on up there, but they would be fun issues. Well, the thing about her blowing stuff up is because she's, I mean, as we've seen and we saw in the short, there's a big art component to it. When she blows something up, she likes to see the colors. She likes to see maybe the patterns and the explosions. Even her art, uh, later in the episode, she uses art as a weapon. And I I think that's, that's something we've never seen in Star Wars before, and I think that's just that's just cool. I, I have to say that I'm, I'm wondering if Sabine is going to be one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite character in this group, because I just think that there's something playful but dangerous about her character that I just, I like. 
I like her a lot, and I'm desperately, desperately hoping that they do not pair her up in some sort of romance with Ezra, because I feel like that would just ruin it. I love how she's this kind of free creature. She's not entirely sane, almost, like kind of like Barrett was saying. She, <laughs> she really, really likes to just she likes that chaos she really embraces that and and it's artistic to her and i love how she, her her armor is is not it doesn't match it's it's uneven like so she's got like this grid like checkerboard pattern on one shoulder plate and it's different on another side she's got these whorls and things all over her armor and she i love her hair how it's she's clearly been messing with it and she's really individual and i love that i would really like to see her grow as an individual character and not like do the cheap thing where they just pair her up with someone and she becomes like just an accessory there's no reason for her to like ezra she's 16 he's 14 there's no reason for sabine to like ezra you know and i think who was the death watch uh woman that was related to satine bo katan she could be bo katan's daughter and named after her sister that's a possibility sabine satine i just it's too close to be a coincidence in my mind. Yeah, but they but they gave her a different family name at least, and Cries versus Rin. And if she really is sixteen, if this is going to be Obi Wan's child. They would have had to have conceived her when they met again during the Clone Wars back in one of those early arcs. I don't see them saying that that was happening because it changes the way those characters interacted. Although it certainly would change the. Uh, uh, the connotations of Anakin's "Go save your girlfriend" line seems like it's just a, it's a similar naming thing. I'd be more for what Barrett said, the idea that this might be a child of Bo-Katan or something, uh, or someone who idolized Bo-Katan rather than otherwise, and that would probably make more sense for a character who's a Mandalorian in armor to idolize Bo-Katan rather than Satine, perhaps even giving us at some point a way of knowing how hopefully Bo-Katan was the one who helped pull things back together on Mandalore, because we just kind of left her hanging back in season five. And I hope that's something that this series does. I hope that we can maybe go visit some of those loose ends you know, that, that we have left over from the Clone Wars. And this would be the perfect opportunity because, you know, at one point Ezra asks Satine, what happened to your family? And she says the Empire. I, again, we're going to have to know more about that at some point. And I think this is maybe some of the seeds that they're they're planting now to, to show up, you know, in, in later episodes and later seasons. The Empire thing could be, I mean, that, that could just be something more benign, though. They play off of Ezra's gamble here, or vice versa, and that when they do arrive with the supplies, and we find out that the supplies are not just blasters, but also food for these people, they talk about how the Empire took their land and basically said, you know, speak out about it, you'll be a traitor, and carted people off. Uh, that was something similar to what happened to one of Ezra's closest friends that we meet early on in Ezra's gamble. Someone who he's losing because of the Empire taking the family's land, and now there's nowhere for them to go except to go live with other family members, ironically on Alderaan. It seems like that's a theme they're going to be using here, is the idea of misery caused by the Empire, not in a big, violent, upfront sort of way, but in many ways sort of just ripping the foundations out from under families and seeing where people end up. I would imagine we'll probably see that background-wise with all the characters, even new ones that we meet along the way. That seems like it'll be the running theme of what brings characters together. Not hatred for the Empire or violence at the hands of the Empire, but I have been disenfranchised because the Empire did such and such that took away my support base or my foundation along the way. After they escape, they return to Lothal to Tarkin Town, where they do provide food for the refugees, and they bring the weapons to Visago, who is a Deveronian. 
with him, he provides them with information on a group of Wookiee slaves that apparently they'd been looking for. And that leads us very quickly into the next part of the episode where they're going to go try to free these slaves. And before we jump to that, I have to say another another little callback to pre-production designs. I loved Visago's droids, which were IG-88 prototypes. And I guess also before we move on, I must express my frustration. Let me be one of the many expressing the fact that it is ridiculous that when they talk about returning, they name the capital city of the planet of Lothal, which some characters call Lothal, others call Lothal. That's a whole other pronunciation thing. But the name of the capital city of Lothal is Capital City, which is even more <laughs> ridiculous than something like Mexico City. Let's, gee, we don't need the, you know, we don't have a name for our capital city. Let's call it country name city. And here we've got this. I'm, I'm kind of hoping this is like a Mad Lib script and they wound up just missing filling in that Mad Lib. Really? The capital city's name is Capital City? Unless that's a money reference of some kind, that's idiotic. You know, Nathan, I know I'd seen prior to this that you had posted something, how that upset you. I, I got to say, it, it didn't bother me. I, I thought, you know, okay, you know what? It didn't take a lot of thought. They weren't very creative, but yeah, so what? Just lazy. No argument, but I don't think it's worth the energy that you're expelling being upset. You know, you bring up the laziness, and that's not the only time in this episode where they kind of got a little lazy, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but when they get back on that ship, the Star Destroyer, to save Ezra, they really don't really explain that. You know, they're just kind of there. But before they can save Ezra, they have to get into trouble, and they do meet up with this freighter or trans imperial transport ship that's set up as bait by the isb agent callus who is again interestingly enough isb is something that they took from the old west ends role-playing game that was something that they created so they're set up they manage to escape but during that escape they lose ezra ezra is captured by the imperials and there's one moment where zeb is like Sorry, kid, you did good. And then he leaves him. And I have to admit, that shocked me. It was his fault. It wasn't just that he left him. He actually grabbed him by the shoulder and pushed him backwards. It was Zeb's fault. But not intentionally. But the idea that they were, I mean, they we find out quickly that they don't leave him for very long. But the idea that in a Disney program like this, that basically they left him to the Empire, I was shocked. I was shocked. To a degree, I mean, I, it was shocking that he was left behind, but at the same time, it, it, it's, it's just another ding on Zeb's characterization here that, thankfully, they are able to play off of with some heavier guilt later. Hopefully, that'll be something that doesn't just end here. There'll be a moment it's referenced later, because without the guilt, it really made him even more into that stereotypical, I only care for myself type of character. For some reason, he never comes off. I mean... He doesn't come off as remorseful immediately. You know, oh, I thought it was with you. No, you didn't. You know, and, well, uh, it was him or me kind of stuff. I mean, he's, he tries to justify it initially, and everybody else is like, are you crazy? I mean, he is putting himself in the box of being the one who doesn't give a crap on the crew, playing into the stereotype. It seems like this character's been built around. I want more from a situation like this. Uh, I want that guilt to then drive him even more than we see in the actual episode, because as a shocking moment, it was shocking, but it was less the, ooh, he just got left behind, and more of a, man, I really don't like Zeb yet. You know, they tried to pull the Han Solo 
you know, because when we first meet Han Solo, he's out for himself. He doesn't really care until he gets a little guilt. And that's kind of what I felt that they were trying to do with Zeb, where he is out for himself until he sees something greater, you know, than himself. I mean, he's with the team, so he must feel something. He's delivering food to people. He's trying to rescue slaves. So he has some sort of morality inside of him. But I think they tried to do the Han Solo thing and it just didn't work out quite as well as they hoped. He's the emotionally constipated tough guy. Like it's kind of a trope, but like we're going to we're going to see him like, you know, reveal his feelings later and he's going to open up to people he trusts and right now he's got some issues. So I I thought it was perfectly in character and it was actually kind of fun to see a character screw up like really badly this early in the show. It was kind of neat. But there's another point to this. After they realize that Ezra is left behind to the tender mercies of the Empire, and I love how he says, well, he's a kid. They'll go easy on him. Sure. Okay. Then they take a vote. Do we go back for him? Zeb says no. He says we, we can't go back for him. And then Sabine says no, that they'd be expecting that. These are supposed to be our heroes. And when some of your heroes are basically saying, nope, sorry, it's not a good idea for us to go back, I, I found that I didn't expect to see it. But at the same time, I, I, I found it more believable. You know, I did too. And I think the fact is, is because I think the Empire, the way that they're portraying the Empire, they're more deadly. I mean, even in the original trilogy, the Empire was in power, but Darth Vader was deadly. You know, the Emperor was deadly, but the Empire didn't seem so deadly. You had all these bumbling people who worked for the Empire that were getting choked out all the time for failing. And it seems like this callous guy doesn't fail as much. And when he's leading... They don't fail. He doesn't like to fail. They get the job done. And this empire seems a little bit more scary to me. And I wouldn't want to go back to that Star Destroyer with facing this empire because they seem to get the job done. Really? They seem to get the job done? Because Ezra seems to uh, escape from that cell a little easily. (laughs) Again, lazy. They don't explain that. I mean, he hides behind the... the, I mean, they're just making the stormtroopers idiots, which, you know... That's what they're going along with. But uh, it's just, I don't know how to explain that, how Ezra is. He's, he's this master uh, escape artist now. Now, actually, I think these stormtroopers are this series equivalent of the battle droids that we all love so much in Clone Wars. My husband <laughs> did a Roger Roger joke in the middle of that scene. <laughs> but they don't talk. The stormtroopers don't talk, if you notice. They don't say a word. Mostly. But, I mean, they, they stand there in kind of the same rigid way as the battle droids and such. Yeah, I, I think Baron's onto something in that they're trying to make the Empire more menacing with them actually being afraid to go back or being willing to risk everything to go back. I mean, Callus has a Star Destroyer, the Lawbringer. It's it's essentially his Star Destroyer for his mission, and you know they've had some trouble going up against tides a little bit and getting away from stormtroopers and Imperials on speeder bikes. This would mean actually going into the belly of the beast. So in that sense, it makes sense that they'd be a little bit afraid of it. It does seem, though, that the stormtroopers are... You know, the Empire has its might. It's got agents like Callus. We'll see at the end. It has the Inquisitor. It has Star Destroyers. Yeah, it also has the Stormtroopers that can't hit the broadside of a barn. But the other parts of it really, really rocks. What gets me about the scene uh, and the whole idea of them capturing Ezra and wanting to use Ezra then as bait is and it kicks me out of the episode every time. I love the idea that he is the bait, so they have to make a decision about a character they just met. It makes them heroes rather than just being loyal to other members on their team. But when he's in the cell 
you know, search him. First off, they're not going to search him before they throw him in the cell. Fine, whatever. Search him, and they don't find the holocron. They grab everything else. But when he was back aboard the ghost, he checked out the lightsaber, which I think was a reveal we didn't need right then. It should have been later. Um, checked out the lightsaber, checks out the holocron, has the holocron with him so that he can have that meditative moment to have it open up so he passes the test and we see the Jedi potential in him and such. Where did he put it that they didn't find it? It's not like they did a really thorough search, but it's not like he's got giant pockets or a baggy bag in the back of his pants either. I'm wondering if he made it into a holocron can I say suppository, to have somewhere to put it because it seems like he's literally pulling it out of nowhere. See, I said it nicely in this case. Pulling it out of nowhere when he's sitting in there. Somehow they don't find the holocron, but they find anything else and take his little slingshot thing away. But he still manages to have the holocron there, and after using it, it's just going to be something he's able to make disappear again somewhere into some kind of, of pocket fold within his jacket. I mean, uh, it reminds me of, uh, is it Cloak from the Marvel comics? It has like the void of his cloak and he can just put stuff in there. Where did it go? For some reason, that simple point kicks me out of that scene each time I watch it. It's cool that he gets to do it, but like Baron said, it's a little bit lazy. We should have seen him maybe hiding it somehow or something or see him pulling it out of the folds of something so it didn't look like the Imperials were just imbeciles and somehow the holocron just sort of magically vanishes and reappears whenever Ezra needs it. Or almost like they find the holocron and don't realize the importance of it and just kind of give it to them because they think it's a toy or something like See, that. You know that I would have gone with, but they don't touch it. Especially since later they make a point of he's got to be able to use the force to access it. That that's his test, so to speak. And that's something if you haven't seen the Clone Wars, you wouldn't know. Now is that canon now? Because from what I remember, the you didn't actually need to be force a force user force sensitive to open up a holocron but then they said that you had to i mean it wasn't really explained so now they're saying that in order to open up a holocron you have to be a force wielder yes even though the holocrons made their debut in the legends continuity or the old expanded universe the only stuff that counts now is what we've seen within anything that counts as that story group's new canon so the way holocrons were handled in the clone wars is all we have so apparently you need the force to do it. I'm surprised they didn't have some kyber crystal element attached to this thing, but presumably the holocron is already put together and just able to replay that message over and over because it seems like Kanan uses that as a meditative thing. Um, but yeah, seems like you do need to be a force user now to use a holocron, not just make one or construct one. The crew of the ghost come back to rescue Ezra as he kind of escapes on his own and so they don't have to go very far. And they have this conflict in the docking bay. And again, Ezra is able to confuse the Imperials by saying, no, I think they were in the upper bay. And this ISB agent buys it at least partially and sends half his force to, to the upper bay and the other half to the lower bay. It seems kind of a, a, a little bit of Keystone Cops, but I go with it. And a little lazy because of that entire Star Destroyer. He sends everyone down there to stop them and barely anybody shows up. And again, they just fly up and land in the Star Destroyer's docking bay and head on in. I mean, I know it's meant to be a trap, but kind of either an obvious trap for the heroes or at the same time, really, really bad security for the Imperials. Something else that doesn't get explained. It just kind of zips on by. It makes me wonder if this was designed to be something meant to be uh, maybe three episodes worth in length or maybe even four that they condensed down into two to make it something that fits in an hour time slot with commercials. And where is the security 
uh, for the stormtroopers. Any stormtrooper helmet that you put on can hear every calm conversation that's going on. There's no compartmentalization when it comes to stormtroopers. It's the new NSA model. You know, another thing, and I, I think it was actually stepping back to the first time the ghost left the, uh, the escape from the Star Destroyer. Hera says, tells Chopper to jam their tractor beam. Can we do that? That that took me out. I was like, because it, it, it had me think, I didn't know you could jam a tractor beam. You can now. <laughs> yeah, in the original trilogy, it took Obi-Wan's life to turn the tractor beam off so they could get away. And I know that's nitpicking, and overall, I still really like the episode, but that's just one of those things that had me, it was a head-scratcher. Oh, we, we really need a cut scene where they're discussing their strategy, and it's, uh-huh, 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 not if we <laughs> jam it. <laughs> you know, we'll find out that the ghost has a cloaking device eventually. That's why they call it the ghost, or why people can't find it. You know, I'm, I'm sure the ghost has a lot more tricks up its sleeve. Again, reaching back to the... A New Dawn novel, we find that the ghost does have a lot of tricks up its sleeve. It's not named the ghost for nothing. Well, you know, I'm making these comments without reading A New Dawn. I, I would assume that a majority, maybe not a majority, but a good portion of the listeners have not read that book as well. So uh, hopefully I'm speaking for them as and getting answers as much as they would like the answers. One thing, and Nathan, you tell me if, if you think, I mean, we've kind of, again, we've kind of touched on this, that I think reading A New Dawn gave a different aspect to watching this episode i almost wish that i had waited to read a new dawn till after i had seen this episode and then i'd gone back and went oh okay that makes sense oh i get that now yeah i call it the stover effect uh based on having read the novelization of revenge of the sith before seeing the film and enjoying the film much more because of that this definitely was a stover effect type of of situation knowing the characters from a new dawn where they'd been same thing even to a degree with ezra's gamble knowing that this kid isn't really just a crazy psycho pickpocket that grabs anything as a super kleptomaniac force user that he really has other schemes that he tries to pull that helped take his i'm going to steal everything including pickpocketing the lightsaber there at the end um, all that type of stuff and gives it more context than it just being overdone in the episode. So I, I think it helped my enjoyment rather than, I, I'm glad that I read both of them beforehand. So the ghost escapes a second time from the Star Destroyer with the information that the Wookiee slaves that they were searching for had been taken to the spice mines of Kessel. And I was kind of excited to hear that because I don't think in anything outside of the Legends continuity now that we'd ever actually seen Kessel. And so it's something that we're, it's talked about in the original trilogy, and now we finally get to see it. I really hope they're setting up a Kessel Run solo movie with, you know, they're talking about these solo movies that they're going to do. I want one to be the Kessel Run. And I got so excited when they named Kessel and Wookiees. I mean, come on, give me more beard. We need more beard. We need anytime they introduce a Wookiee, I think that it's a home run. And I wanted to see these Wookiees. And didn't it kind of bring you back to the holiday special where you have this little Wookiee and you have the father Wookiee? You know, he wasn't like a Gunji Wookiee. You know, we got Gunji, but he it kind of reminded me of the holiday special dynamic. Barrett, the audio that they used for the young Wookiees roar or gurgle or growl, whatever, that that was pulled directly from the audio for 
the holiday special. Wow, I, I, I did not know that. And I found myself cringing because I <laughs> tortured my children with that earlier this summer. They said they wanted to see something Star Wars they'd never seen before, so I showed them the holiday special. And my daughter referred to Lumpy as sounding like a constipated Wookiee. Nice. Well, and and let's say it's cool to see Kessel. Great to see. I mean, again, this is a fresh continuity. So, you know, tossing the expectations of what you expected Kessel to be out the window and actually didn't wind up all that much different uh, in my eyes as the way I'd sort of pictured it when reading. But sometimes my imagination kind of goes away from what's written on the page. But then we get the Wookiees. And it's supposed to be this triumphant, dude, it's the Wookiees. There's the ties between them and the Jedi. There's the ties between them and Zeb, helping Zeb's people and everything. It's the Wookiees. It's Star Wars. How awesome. And we're seeing them in their slave state, which is something that was hinted at so much, but we rarely saw actually in Star Wars stories. How cool is this? And then we see the Wookiees. And somebody who designed them spent way too much time playing with the old Kenner Chewbacca figure from the (laughs) early runs. Because these Wookiees are kind of ridiculous looking. They look emaciated, which they may be by being slaves, but if they're a new batch of slaves coming in, shouldn't they have been emaciated after being slaves for a while, as opposed to coming in as slaves? They just look odd. I mean, we get uh, Wolf Waru, the dad, who I don't think is named in the episode, and Kitwar, the son. The dad looks like he is literally, somebody's pulled a Toy Story and turned an old Chewbacca action figure into a character. Cool for some collectors, does not look wookie to me. And the child's face was really, really creepy to me. Uh, I want, for lack of a better term, I want the Clone Wars animated version of the Wookiees back. Because if this is how Wookiees are going to look in this series, it's really the only time, outside possibly of Ezra's nose, the only time in this series that it really feels like the design missed the mark. Everything else feels really spot on for Star Wars, original trilogy, all these things that we expect to see but not the Wookiees. It seems like they shot and missed by a good half mile. They were a little too clean and too shiny. If they were slaves, they their fur should have been a little roughed up or maybe even had patches of fur that was missing. I mean, when you contrast the design of the Wookiee to, say, Sabine's armor, where she has all kind of nuances in the armor, where it's paint splashes and different symbols or whatever, and they were a kind of plain. I agree with you on that. Oh, you guys are missing it. They were just deloused. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were shaved, you know? The Wookiees, I feel like, really highlight kind of the, the methods of how they're doing the animation this time around. Um, when I went to New York Comic Con last year, I went to the Rebels panel, and they were talking about how they were, because of you know contractual obligations, not able to take any of the character designs with them. So they had to make up everything. So all of these characters, they look very Clone Wars-like, but they were completely redone. So they were remodeled, re-rigged, that all the animation aspects of it were done from scratch, basically. But you don't really notice it until these Wookiees walk on the screen, and it's kind of like, aha, here we go. They are taking a lot of shortcuts by like putting colors and like palettes almost on these relatively smooth character models and you don't really notice it with the humans and stuff because you know human faces are relatively smooth and you can get away with faking ridges and you know wrinkles and things by like basically painting them on but when you get to these wookies you can tell they were just like these guys aren't going to be on screen long enough to warrant the thousands of hours it's going to take to try to you know sculpt in in the computer these the hair on these things and they just kind of like threw like this basically paint over these stick figure characters and put them on the screen. Jen, you bring up a point that 
I was actually talking to Arnie about Rebels, you know, a few, I'd say maybe about six, eight weeks ago. And his, his take on it was that at this point, Rebels looks really cheap to him. And he thought that this was Disney trying to give us Star Wars, but doing it on the cheap. And I didn't really feel it until I saw the Wookiees, because I agree with you guys. It just, it didn't look right. And I had trouble just kind of watching them because it just, it didn't fit. I mean, there were other points where I thought maybe some of the modeling could have been better. One example is the Star Destroyer. I, I thought that there was maybe some missed scale. And other times, just little bits of animation just didn't look right to me. But with the Wookiees, I really hope that this is just an example of it'll get better. Because when you think about the Clone Wars and how it started looking at you know the movie and some of the animation to by the end of season five, season six, how much better it got, I really hope it it gets better because I, you know, I, I had trouble with some of this. Oh, I'm not sure I would say it was necessarily something that seemed like it was cheap. It, it, it seems like, again, it's the ground floor and it's going to build from here. The character um, expressions are still very overdone because they don't have that nuance yet to being able to, to, to animate them uh, with these models in quite as, as intricate a way as like they did in the later seasons of the Clone Wars. Uh, the city seemed relatively empty compared to what we might have seen later in the Clone Wars, but Really, uh, aside from the Wookiees, that never really bothered me all that much watching it. And I think it's because of the nature of the classic trilogy relative to the prequels. You look at the Clone Wars, you expect the prequels. And the prequels was all about, let's take CGI and jam as much stuff into every scene as we possibly can. See, it's a lived-in world. Epic means lots of stuff. But there's one thing the classic trilogy taught us, uh, especially A New Hope, was that when it came down to doing things, not sure if they're going to work, uh, working within budgetary constraints and then breaking them and then working within new ones and whatnot, that epic doesn't have to mean stuff everywhere, people everywhere. That you can have a story that really does well with a core group of characters in their situation and might have stuff on the outside that's kind of goofy. You know, hey, Bosk, it's a reused Doctor Who costume with a lizard head on it. But you don't feel that there's an emptiness there because the characters and the fact that they're dealing with this broader empire and broader galaxy as sort of the backdrop for them still makes it feel epic. So for whatever reason, this didn't feel as empty in a lot of ways as even some parts of the Clone Wars did when there was stuff everywhere, like your Onderon citizens where they were all looking the same because they reused the character models over and over. That was a ton of stuff on screen, but still felt more empty than this episode. So, you know, take it for what it will. I think this is off to a better start. We get the conflict. The crew of the ghost is trying to rescue the Wookiees as the Empire is trying to take out the ghost and recapture the Wookiees. And we get the big reveal. Kanan reveals himself as a Jedi to the Empire and basically draws all the fire toward himself. As I said earlier, I think this reveal would have been a lot more meaningful had we known how hard Kanan had been working to try to keep that a secret because it doesn't feel to me like it has the weight that it should. We've also got one thing that gets in this, this sequence, this is what gave me the chill, but it wasn't as much of a chill as it probably should have been because one, they pulled a dark mall here. Great moment where he gets up there, you know, focus your fire on, on the Jedi. But we've seen that in each preview so far. So that moment didn't have that kind of gravitas because we knew it was coming. It was Darth Maul pulling out the double-bladed lightsaber in a freaking trailer before The Phantom Menace came out. But I would say 
We didn't necessarily need to know how hard he was struggling with it. That is one way we could have given it more gravitas to this. I think, honestly, just in terms of the structure of this episode, it would have carried more weight if they hadn't had Ezra find the lightsaber earlier. If they hadn't find the holocron earlier, maybe, as a hint that Kanan's a Jedi, and then the question of, ooh, is he active? Does he have a lightsaber? And that sort of thing might have come up. But to have the lightsaber actually active and a piece of a scene earlier, this is one time you don't need to put that weapon on the wall in Act 1 so you can use it in a later act. In this case... To me, it ruined any surprise there could have been. We even would have got maybe a little bit of a, a surprise having seen the trailers if it wasn't something brought up earlier in the episode. But as soon as that comes out earlier, you deflate any of the coolness, well, not any, much of the coolness and the shock of that scene. Uh, he said, you know, I'm about to, you know, reveal it to everyone or, or, or let everyone in on the secret. And you're like, ooh, what's the secret? Except you realize, oh, we've already figured that out early in the episode, even if we haven't read a new dawn. Uh, if it would have been kept a secret to the viewer, I think that would have had more of a, an emotional punch. I, you know, I could not disagree with both of you more. I thought that scene was awesome. It's not the fact that we don't know he's a Jedi. It's the fact that the Empire doesn't know that he's a Jedi. And for Kanan to show himself as a Jedi with the lightsaber and put himself out there, that's what a Jedi is supposed to be. You know, and that gave me chills. I love that scene. That was a great scene. And Kanan might become my favorite character because of that. He's, it's all about sacrifice. He did everything we know about the Jedi. He made a plan, sacrifice. He's letting the Empire know. Did you see the look on Callus's face when he realized that Kanan was a Jedi? I mean, it was a great scene. It was a great scene. And he and and Callus knew immediately that they needed to focus the fire on the Jedi. The other stuff was not important that he could see him with a trophy of a Jedi lightsaber to bring to his masters or his, his bosses. I think that was a great scene for Kanan to stand out there and take all that fire on as a true Jedi should. But see, I agree with that. He's, he's embracing his heritage in a way, but to know how much he was trying to hide it or, or keep it a secret or, avoid it. I mean, let's not even go into a new dawn. Why is that such a big deal? Because he goes, I'm going to let everybody in on the secret. Because the, the Jedi were hunted down. You know, if you tell somebody you're a Jedi, there's probably bounties out for Jedi heads. So for him to go out there and say, I am a Jedi, that's a big deal. It's the fact that yeah. it's just, that it's, it's not in the episode. It's one of those, it, it's like the holocron and how the holocron works and what is this thing. It, it kind of assumes a little bit of prior knowledge about the situation before going into it. To even have had him say something about how, you know, I've been hiding all this time. I, ha you know, maybe looks at his lightsaber and says, you know, I haven't used this thing in years or something like that would have been a quick little piece of dialogue that could have set up that reveal as being something more. As it stands, the buildup isn't there. It's an awesome moment, a great scene, a chill-inducing scene, but it lacks the the buildup or, or, or an adequate, I guess, build up you don't think the fact that he had the lightsaber tucked away in pieces wasn't enough as a buildup as to say that he has not used that lightsaber in a long time i mean he had it locked no, up in a room in different pieces he didn't even have it on him he's carrying it in pieces and puts it back together before he uses it for all we know from the episode he carries it like that all the time we need more context i felt like it worked fine on its own i feel like it's there is some implication but like even if, if you've seen the prequel movies, Order 66 happened, and you 
we've seen the Emperor. He's not going to be like, well, some of the Jedi got away. Eh, we'll just let him go. Like He's going to hunt them down ruthlessly. And like you think about the longer it goes and the more like the fewer Jedi that are left, it's, you know, any, any of them that pop up are going to be a serious thing. And, and the Empire is going to bend in a, just a ton of resources towards hunting them down. I don't think that really needs a lot of exposition. I feel like this has already been a very kind of hand-holding episode. And I, I kind of liked that they didn't bludgeon us over the head with it and that we let up, they let us just kind of figure it out. I wonder if we're thinking about this the wrong way, that this was what things were building up to. I wonder if when they were writing it, their way of looking at it wasn't that they needed to hide the lightsaber initially or do anything to sort of build up this mystery of what it is that Kanan's hiding. Oh, look, he's revealing himself to the Empire and all of that. That they didn't look at it that way because maybe from a writing standpoint, they thought of this more as this is the beginning point. And it's all building towards the final scene of the episode, the dun-dun-dun moment with the Inquisitor that kicks off a lot of what we're going to see in the series. Maybe to their minds... The climax itself starts rolling here. He pulls out the lightsaber. Now it's, ooh, what are the imp- what's the Empire going to do? Not, ooh, what's the secret or what's the situation that will finally get him to reveal himself? Maybe the, the, the build-up and climax thing, we need to shift our ideas of what that was supposed to be back by, you know, five minutes or so in the episode. You know, the one character arc that I guess we're not getting as much it's not getting as much of our conversation as as it should is the the change that we see in Ezra through this episode I think he really is the one that has the character arc here he starts out the episode very much for himself we see him as Baron said taking all that he's given one fruit but he takes six he tries to steal the crate because he see, he sees that somebody else wanted it, it must be worth something. Even when he gets on the ghost, he doesn't thank them for rescuing him. He's like, well, just drop me off with my crate. Then he starts to see how the other members of the crew of the ghost are, are giving to the people in need. And then when he's trapped aboard the Star Destroyer, oh, they're not going to come back for me. People don't do that. And by Castle, by the time he gets to Kessel, he's, he goes to save the young Wookiee. And I think it's Zeb who says, look, Kanan, I think you've inspired the boy to do something like you would have done. And then getting to the end where he's given the choice, does he want to stay by himself or does he want to become part of something greater? Does he want to learn how to use the force? I mean, it's it's Kanan not only accepting his role as a Jedi, but also accepting the, the responsibility of a Jedi to pass on his teachings. And so they're both kind of making this, this sort of this growth together. And, and that part I really did like. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I liked it. The Padawan, even, even Callus says when he uh, corners the Wookiee youngling, I guess we'd call him the Wookiee. What are Wookiees called when they're that young? <laughs> Stinkies. When he quarters the Wookiee child or cub, and Kanan, he even says, or excuse me, and Ezra, Callus even says, you know, we got a Jedi and his Padawan. You know, he can't, he's chomping at the bit. And I, I see a lot of things on forums and blogs and stuff, how they say that Star Wars is much more than, than Jedi. And I could not disagree with that more. I mean, the whole core of Star Wars is, is the Jedi Order and the struggle of the good and the Jedi are not only the good, but they're powerful. And I like that. And I like the fact that Ezra chooses to want to learn the ways of the Force. And 
that's to me that's going to be the redeeming quality of Ezra you know I really was he really wasn't growing on me until he starts to try to until he makes that decision to sacrifice himself to save someone else and he makes that decision to try to learn the ways of the force and that's Star Wars to me I actually like the way that it plays out um, there's a symmetry here in a sense that you know Caleb slash Kanan was 14 when order 66 happens that's the age that Ezra is now picking up with that training, uh, presumably picking up with the training and such. I like the fact that we don't actually see him make the decision, and we sort of get that realization that he kind of knew that this was coming, and he sensed Kanan coming there because he's in his home, that communications tower, and asks the question about what is the Force. And he knows that Kanan's standing right behind him. And Kanan makes his offer. He doesn't stand there waiting. He doesn't stand there saying, you know, well, let's see what's going to happen. I need to know if I'm going to get my lightsaber back or not. He allows it to be something where he just kind of disappears and leaves it up to Ezra. Ezra, in theory, could have just kept the lightsaber and not gone back to them. But he's either showing that he's giving him that free will, or Kanan's instead showing that he has faith that Ezra will make what he would think of as the right decision. Um, but at the same time, while it bothered me the first time watching it, the idea that after all of this, this character arc, as Jonathan put it, that Ezra's gone through and sort of seeing as uh, something bigger than himself, being willing to save the Wookiee cub or whatever, that he still steals the freaking lightsaber. That he still pickpockets the thing there at the end. It would seem like, especially as odd as he was at Kanan, that was a real douchey thing to do. I cannot imagine what was going through the writer's mind the first time I watched it to have this character still steal the freaking lightsaber and walk away when this mission was done. Like, as if all of that character growth that he had gone through got hit with a reset button. He's back to being uh, the pickpocket that we saw him as we started out the episode. But on watching it a second time, again, kind of like with Zeb, I'm hoping what we're going to see is a growth out of this where this episode isn't all of the character growth we're supposed to get from these specific events, that it's not as episodic as it sometimes uh, would sound like, that instead what we're seeing is the fact that he is a changed person to a degree. He does want to train. He does want to belong. But this is someone who, uh, when pushed, reverts back to what is safe, reverts back to what he knows. And when it seemed like he was being dropped off by this group and not being welcomed along with them and at, you know, on further adventures and such into this family, that he went right back to the stealing because, hey, I'm going to get something out of this. If this is not a light switch going on and all of a sudden he's a good guy all the time type of moment and this is actually going to be a gradual tough process for him to get used to and the character growth is going to span more than one episode and span a broader arc of just getting him to the point where he's the type of heroic character that some scenes made it seem like he was already becoming then i think that actually worked out very well but on first viewing i was shaking my head and my fist at the screen at the kid um, wanting him, like the stormtrooper, to be kicked down by Callus because it seemed as though he had just flushed all the, the character development. I wonder, uh, specifically on this one, what the audience thought whenever he swiped the lightsaber, whether this was something that showed gro more growth is coming, or if this was like, oh, we just pulled a 180 and it jarred you as much as it jarred me on the first viewing. See, I, I didn't take it like that at all. I took it as he wanted to stay with them, but he was too prideful to ask. They didn't ask him at first, and he took that lightsaber because he knew they'd come back for it. And that's how I took it. Not that he wanted to steal it, that he took that lightsaber because he knew that they'd find out, and then they would come back for him. That's how I took it. The episode ends 
with Agent Callus contacting the Inquisitor and, and informing him of his discovery. And that's where this series jumps off. Now, looking ahead, what did this do for you guys? Are you excited for what's coming next? Are you cautiously optimistic or are you like, oh, I'm not sure what we're getting? I have not ever really been very excited about the Inquisitor. I feel like he's just a, an Asajj Ventress kind of just stand in. He looks almost a little bit similar. He's got the kind of pale face with the dark outfit and and he might be really cool. And, and I don't want to prejudge this, but having i don't i just desperately don't want this series to get into a kind of inquisitor tries to catch them i'll get you next time gadget we failed this time up we got away you know i don't i do not want that cyclical redundant chase kind of thing and so i'm hoping he will be used maybe sparingly and actually have some impact on what happens with the characters and not just have him be the baddie chasing them that they always foil and they always kind of make look like an idiot and then they run off you know into the sunset usa today released a clip of the inquisitor fighting kanan and the inquisitor kicks kanan's butt spoiler alert you know and now that uh nathan had said that kanan wasn't fully trained he was just a padawan at best when order 66 went down it makes more sense and I actually got to hear the Inquisitor speak. And because up to this point, we've just kind of seen still images and he has this cool lightsaber or whatever. But he seems really menacing and in control and very learned as opposed to other Dark Force users or Sith or whatever he is, that they kind of just use their anger and brute force to win battles. It seems like from the clip that they released today that the Inquisitor actually uses his mind to win battles that he's a strategist you know he's more like say the emperor than he is like darth maul and so it's gonna be kind of interesting to see where the inquisitor goes and i hope that he's not the son but he kind of looks like him and i get your point jen with the mustache twirling i mean i think that you made that famous on republic forces radio network the mustache twirling you know the grievous where he, he always gets foiled and he, he comes back. I hope they don't make that same mistake with this. And he needs to start killing people. You know, the Inquisitor. If he starts killing people, then I think that he will have a little bit more gravitas or... He'll be more threatening. Yeah, to be more threatening. That we will give him more credit as a actual villain. You know, and he's just not some guy to be foiled. So I'm hoping that's what happens. Because those are the best stories. When you have your hero go up against a villain or force that they cannot beat and they find a way to beat them that's better than having get the than having him get outsmarted all the time i want the inquisitor to be the ultimate bad a who cannot be beat and they find a way to beat him and they barely get away by the skin of their teeth and that's the only way it'll sit well with me in this new series but i'm hopeful you know i'm hopeful it seems like the empire is very lethal it seems like they are in charge, and they know that they're in charge, that they have these different characters, these different people who different who did do do different things for them and get the job done. I like that. And it seems like Callus and the Inquisitor have some sort of friendship going because the Inquisitor did not talk down to Callus when he got summoned by him. In fact, he says, uh, you know, you were you did well to contact me. So I'm kind of 
excited to see where this is going to go. You know, who knows? Maybe the Inquisitor will have a Padawan himself, you know, in the future. And the promise that, you know, Darth Vader's out there somewhere, that we probably get to see him. I mean, you know, the Emperor's out there somewhere. So, you know, they have all this potential with this original trilogy feel, with all this new character material. I mean, the sky's the limit here. And I'm pretty excited to see where we're going to go from here. You know, I'm actually really excited for this series. I think that aside from, I mean, I know we, I hit on the things that bugged me, but if you notice going back to them, most of them were fairly small things, relatively speaking, to the entire whole. And a lot of it could be explained away as being the kids' fair uh, to get kids into the episode to begin with. There weren't a lot of huge glaring things. So I'm very positive on this episode, and I'm excited to see where things go from here. As for the Inquisitor, I'm excited to see him because, one, I'm hoping this doesn't turn into sort of a he's-always-in-every-episode type of villain. Oh, Callus is more of that type of villain, and instead what we get with the Inquisitor is more of kind of like a feel of the fugitive. There's an ongoing chase going on, and every so often they'll cross paths, and it's always, as Baron said, you know, kind of by the skin of their teeth they get out of there, and one-upping this guy becomes a real big deal when they're able to make it happen. And hey... The guy's voiced by Jason Isaacs, and how freaking awesome is that? Uh, that's a guy I wanted to see in Star Wars in some big way for a very long time. Uh, so, excited for the Inquisitor. The fact that he only showed up in the last part of the episode. There were a lot of folks online, uh, when I was discussing this on one of our Facebook pages, who was griping about the fact that the Inquisitor didn't play a bigger role in the pilot. They thought Spark of Rebellion should have the Inquisitor in it to really kick things off, introduce the main villain the same time you introduce the main characters, and so on. And I think they made the perfect decision here. They used him as a teaser. They used him as a launching off point, and in a sense, he's the punctuation at the end of the episode to say, hey, what you just saw, that bit of character development, the introduction of the characters, that last 45 minutes or so, that's a prologue. The real chase, the real action, the real threat, that's about to begin here in about, what is it, 10 days or whatever it is from the start of the season backwards to when this actually aired uh, on Disney. So I'm psyched, and I think they handled the Inquisitor in exactly the right way here. They used him to set up what is to come. They didn't overuse him. He was exactly what they needed to end this with a whoa moment, even if it is a moment that we did see uh, in the previews. Uh, this one didn't seem like it lost its oomph. The fact that it was where it was, I think, added to the oomph of all. And I was afraid it'd be at the beginning of the episode and wind up being uh, all Inquisitor all the time. Let's bring on the chase. And I will say that this introduction to Rebels really does have me excited for the series more than I thought I would have been when this series was initially announced. I always hoped... I mean, this is really my favorite era to talk about, you know, original trilogy. And I am, I, I am very hopeful, uh, more optimistic than even earlier this year when you interviewed me, Nathan. But I think that this series really has potential. I hope that they are able to follow through on the promise. But we'll have to see what the future brings. But until then, I want to thank you all for joining us. And Nathan, Barrett, Jen, I will see you guys in a few weeks when the series starts in earnest. See you next time. All right, all right, all right. I like this show. It's exciting. Wait, wrong franchise? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. 
The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit republicforces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, hosted by Nathan and Mark, which you can find amongst the 2nd Airborne Division podcast network on StarWarsReport.com.